Hello and welcome to this Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place on the 2nd or 3rd of June 2021 as part of Sustainable Wine's Future of Wine Americas Conference 2021. We'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference, BSI, Bodega Argento, Jackson Family Wines, International Wineries for Climate Action and Avenea. Thank you to all of those groups for their important support and I hope you enjoy the session. So welcome everybody to this uh, panel on the emerging pests and disease threats that uh, we face in uh, viticulture and how can sustainable approaches tackle them. Uh, I am Thomas uh, Camperin uh, from UAVIQ. UAVIQ is a California-based uh, company specialized in the release of beneficial insects and mites by drone for the biological control of pests. I'm French myself, and I'm based out of uh, Spain. Um, so um, today I have the pleasure of uh, moderating this uh, panel. So with me, I have uh, Melissa Hansen, uh, Research Program Director of the Washington State's Wine Commission, and David Gates, uh, Senior VP of uh, Vineyard Operations at Ridge Vineyards. Uh, we were expecting uh, Von Walton from the Oregon State University. Uh, hopefully, he will uh, join us uh, later. Uh, but I think in the meantime, we should um, get started. Um, so during the, the panel, if you have some questions, uh, like in the previous sessions, feel free to write them in the chat. Uh, and we'll try to answer them. So, Melissa, why don't you introduce yourself uh, and tell us a bit more about you, where you are currently located, and your uh, current role at the Washington State Wine Commission. Sure. Um, so, I'm the uh, Research Program Director for the Washington State Wine Commission, and the Wine Commission is a state agency marketing commission that represents all of the wine grape growers, all of the wineries. Um, so that's kind of unique that we have both partners together and not just one segment or the other. Um, about uh, six years ago, uh, they hired me. Uh, it was a brand new position. And the background for that was uh, 10 years earlier, they've, the industry got serious about research. They've supported research in the past, but it was time to really amp it up. Um, and so they commit about a quarter of their budget and their annual budget is about five to six million, depending on the crop size. Um, but they commit uh, about a quarter to research. We helped build the uh, Washington State University Wine Science Center that's in the Tri-Cities. Uh, that took a big part of, uh, was about a 10 year commitment. And now uh, that building's paid off and so what they were using to make an annual payment now is dedicated to research. Um, I am not a scientist. I don't have a PhD or a master's. I went to Cal Poly, uh, was an ag journalist, uh, spent about 15 years in the California ag industry, uh, tree fruit and table grapes. I was the uh, research director at the Table Grape Commission before moving up to Washington but uh, our family moved up here to uh, grow Timothy hay, and so we export to Japan. But while I was up here, I began as a uh, associate editor at the Good Fruit Grower, which is a tree fruit, primarily tree fruit and grape magazine. 
And most of the stories I wrote were technical research-based. Um, so when this position came up, a major focus is not so much to you know, know the, the nitty gritty of the research itself, but to uh, be able to translate that information into something that growers and winemakers can use. And so a big part of what I do is to take the research that it's mostly done by uh, Washington State University, but to help them get it to the hands so they can use it. Um, so uh, the Wine Commission is based in Seattle. I live in Ellensburg, which is the middle of the state. And I have an office in the Wine Science Center, which is about 100 miles south of where I live. Um, and so I don't go there every day, but I'm down there on a routine weekly basis. So I think that's kind of a nutshell of, of what I do. <laughs> so, oh, and I might add that the, uh, the Washington wine industry, uh, we support um, both research at Washington State. And then uh, it, in the last two years, we created um, research grant programs that we run because we recognize that there are times when we want to send research dollars to Davis or uh, do some proof of concept at our community colleges. Um, and so uh, the last five, seven, five, five years, uh, the industry has uh, had about a million dollar, just a little over a million dollar um, research program that is, is actual research projects. So. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, David, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure, Thomas. Yeah, thank you. So um, David Gates, I'm Senior Vice President of Vineyard Operations at Ridge Vineyards. So Ridge is a, a small winery. Um, we actually have two facilities, two winemaking facilities. Um, one at Montebello is an hour south of San Francisco. And the second one, Lipton Springs, is up in Sonoma County, about an hour north of San Francisco. We have uh, estate vineyards um, in both areas. Um, Montebello is in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, uh, Lytton Springs is, uh, um, let's see, Dry Creek Valley and Alexander Valley in Sonoma County. But we also source fruit from uh, several growers, many of them longtime growers, uh, some down in Paso Robles, uh, a lot up in Sonoma County and, and still a few from Napa County. So. We're mostly a Zinfandel house uh, for, from our Sonoma vineyards. But um, for the longest time, um, ever since we were founded in 1962, Ridge has made a, a Cabernet Sauvignon-based wine called Montebello from the Santa Cruz Mountains as well as a Chardonnay. So we kind of have, um, it, it's North Coast um, viticulture, North, North Coast uh, California viticulture that we do, but we kind of have our foot in, in both uh, doors of, Zinfandel, which is a very different wine than, than Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, I am responsible for all of our estate vineyards as well as our grower vineyards. I have lots of help with that. Um, and as, as, as that, um, as VP of Vineyard Operations, I am very much concerned about getting the best fruit possible to the wineries. Um, both wineries. And so, you know, pests and diseases um, is something that, that I've worked with for, for quite a while. We've been very active in, in trying to be more sustainable um, for, for quite a few years. I've been at Ridge for 30, this will be my 33rd vintage. I always say, you know, if I, if I survive. Um, and, uh, and we've been steadily moving towards sustainable organic production. Um, uh, currently, as of uh, 2021, um, by harvest 2021, 
all of our uh, almost uh, 430 acres of estate vineyards will be certified organic, making us the largest certified organic grower in Sonoma County, also um, by far the largest in uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains Appalachian. Um, let's see, we export our wine um, all over the world, it's 47 countries and counting. Um, and so we are very much concerned about um, what goes into the um, wine, what goes into the grapes, which then goes into the wine in the bottle. As such, we do ingredient labeling on all of our wines. And so we're very um, conscientious about, you know, what, what we're doing out in the vineyard and, and also in the winery. And um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to uh, going into great granular detail, if you want, on our pests and diseases. We can, you know, go down any rabbit hole you want, Thomas. <laughs> Thanks a lot for the introduction. Uh, so I'd like to ask you, and you can start, uh, David. Um, uh, so you represent uh, two different states, uh, Melissa and, and, and David. Um, so can you start, David, and name the main pests and disease threats in, in your area? both existing and, and potential. Absolutely. So the, the first thing I'd love to say is that um, California with our Mediterranean climate, um, so wet, wet, um, cool, wet winters and hot, dry summers is actually a pretty easy, um, relatively speaking, place to grow grapes. We, you know, we don't have a lot of things that are... Um, Cousins in the eastern United States or even in Europe where we get summer rains, we don't have to deal with black rot and some other, um, you know, it, other, other um, diseases. So uh, downy mildew is, is pretty much non-existent in California. But what we do worry about, I'll, I'll kind of run them down in, in um, amount of effort and, and thought that I put into them. So the, the number one would be trunk, um, grapevine trunk diseases. So that kind of encompasses a lot of all fungal diseases, um, uh, including eutypha dieback, uh, bot canker, uh, phomopsis cane and leaf spot, and uh, ESCA, or we call it black measles, but it manifests in many different ways. Um, these are, as they say, all um, fungal diseases that infect grapevines, and they're ubiquitous all over the world. It's probably the the leading cause of uh, yield decline uh, worldwide. Um, and and that, so that, that's probably our biggest one that, that I stay up at night. And certain varieties are much more susceptible to that. Cabernet Sauvignon uh, being one of them, Petit Syrah or Derif being another. Petit Verdot is also quite susceptible. Um, the other, uh, another fungal disease that uh, we deal with quite a bit is powdery mildew. So we don't worry, like I say, about downy mildew. It's just not humid enough in the summertime in California. But, but powdery mildew is an issue all season long, especially in the Santa Cruz Mountains where we're fairly close to the coast. So we're moderate temperatures and, um, and it can be, it, it can be a, a real problem. Botrytis is another fungal disease that, that we worry about a little bit, but not as much. And that's a really good one that where you can use cultural practices that are as effective or more so than, um, than using chemicals to treat them. Um, and that's some, some of that is spring botrytis um, if it's a wet, rainy spring, but mostly we worry about botrytis in the, in the fall as the grapes sugar up 
And um, and if if we you know knock on wood get any rain at harvest, um, Botrytis can raise its its uh, head, especially with Zinfandel or Chardonnay, very thin skin varieties that can get that quite a bit. Um, another one that that I'm concerned about are viruses, and I love there are a lot of different viruses um, that that affect grapevines. Um, being a perennial crop, um, vi virus load tends to accumulate over time. Especially the leaf roll viruses that are propag uh, that that are spread mostly by propagation. So you have to be very careful about uh, sourcing clean um, rootstock, clean uh, budwood um, through Foundation Plant Services has done a marvelous job. But there is a particular virus that has um, kind of reared its ugly head in the last 20 years or so. That was really just um, identified uh, less than. 15 years ago, about 10 years ago now, and that's on um, red blotch virus. So we're still learning a lot about that. It spreads very quickly in vineyards, and it seems to, like, like the other leaf roll viruses, it has um, different virulences, and the one that's kind of running around now seems to be quite virulent, and it, it's, um, it's a major concern, um, especially the way it um, moves. Nematodes are a, 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 a soil pest that all wine grape growing regions focus on. We use rootstocks to combat them, which is, is pretty good. Same thing with phylloxera. Um, yes, we have phylloxera in California. Uh, there are some vines that are still unrooted here, um, mostly in very sandy or very granitic soils, uh, but everyone else is using um, resistant rootstocks. And if we have time, we can talk about the AXR1 saga of uh, about 30 years ago. Um, let's see, another one that, that we worry about quite a bit is mealybug. So we have several mealybugs um, that are more or less benign. Uh, they, they're easy. They don't have a lot of um, generations in a year. Um, and they're, they're easily controlled as long as you can control the ant population because they don't build up in high populations. But about 15 or 20 years ago, vine mealybug made its way over to California from Europe, and it can do many more generations in a year, and it has made it to the North Coast, and it is spreading now uh, quite quickly in the last, I'd say, five years. So dealing with vine mealybug organically, that's another thing that we could talk in more in depth on, but that's a real concern because it does, um, there's, it, anecdotally, it will spread some virus, some leaf roll viruses as well. Uh, another big thing for us are spider mites, mostly Willamette spider mites, um, uh, and uh, that's that's a that's a really good one to look at for biocontrol. Works very well for that, um, and other cultural practices that you can use. Then there's a whole list of um, more minor pests and diseases like leaf hoppers. We don't worry too much about them, except we're worried about the Virginia crawler leaf hopper which um, is starting to move into the North Coast and doesn't get parasitized as well as our Western grape leaf hopper. We have a lot of different worms in, um, in California. By worms, I mean um, omnivorous leaf roller, um, grape leaf skeletonizer. We have a, a newer one that, that um, looks like it's been either eradicated or gone under the radar, and that's the European grapevine moth. There's a huge um, deal about 10 years ago when some of it was found in Napa and uh, both the Napa and other, and some of Sonoma County were quarantined and it's a great success story to have um, 
basically eradicated that pest. Um, we also have sharpshooters that we're, we are concerned with. In Northern California, it's mostly the blue-green sharpshooter. It doesn't really do any damage as far as feeding on the vines, but it does transmit Pearson disease, which is a bacterial disease that, um, similar to grapevine yellows, which you have in Europe um, and, and uh, Australia, that can uh, plug the phloem of vines and, uh, and kill them. Um, and also the uh, glassy wing sharpshooter, which is endemic now in the southern part of the state. And through um, heroic measures with our nursery, um, nursery people that, that um, are doing landscape plants and a lot of money spent by the wine industry to monitor for this pest, we've been able to keep it out of Northern California. Again, kind of knock on wood. I think it's only a matter of time that it it comes up here and that's a game changer for, um, for Pierce's disease because it can, it, it can spread it very quickly. And then we have a few other, other things that are, are a little, you know, more vertebrate press like uh, pests like gophers and ground squirrels and, and whatnot. But that's kind of a, kind of a rundown. There are some um, exotics that have, that are coming in that one of them is the brown mar marmalated stink bug that we are actually, um, it hasn't been a, an issue yet in vineyards, but we're very worried about it because it can, um, it's, it's nasty. It can live on anything and anywhere and um, it, it can do a lot of damage. Uh, another one that I'm concerned about that is not yet in the state is the, um, the Asian uh, lady beetle. It's in the Eastern United States and in the, in the Midwest and up into Canada. And um, it, that seems to be, well, we, and we can talk more about that, Thomas and Melissa, about how those invasive pests act when they first get into a, into a new situation and how you can kind of try to work on them. But how, how's that? Um, too much talking or? <laughs> oh, that's great, <laughs> that's perfect. Work? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Melissa, if you can comment on that, what are the similarities? So obviously, the, the climate is uh, fairly different in Washington. Um, and yeah, if you want to, to, to yeah, go. my list is pretty short compared to yours, David. Uh, <laughs> you know, Washington, just by nature, we're sustainable partly because of our climate. These cold winters we have really do keep pest pressures down. Um, you know, most people think, oh, you're from Washington. How do you deal with all that rain? Well, Eastern Washington gets about, I think, less than the Central Valley of California oftentimes, and that's counting the snow. Um, so we get like seven to 10 inches of uh, precipitation a year. Um, it's uh, a lot of that's in the winter. Um, and we can, because we're all on irrigation, there's very little dry land farming. Um, but because we're on irrigation, we can use deficit irrigation to control canopy size and canopy growth. So that helps our powdery mildew. Um, you know, we do get some spring rains, but powdery mildew, we don't have downy. Uh, so powdery mildew uh, is an obvious uh, issue. Um, but we've learned too, that if we can time sprays early in the season, then as it gets hot, we've already got our sprays on fungicide protection. Um, and you know, if you do it right, then you don't have a problem. Uh, sometimes we do. Um, but on that, we are working uh, with Cornell University's uh, UV light uh, technology. Uh, we've got a machine here that we're trialing. We trialed last year and this year we're supporting research. 
Um, last year was a very low uh, powdery mildew year for us. And so it didn't really show a lot of difference between uh, traditional fungicides. So we're hoping that, you know, as we study it a little longer, we can see, um, and it may have a fit, you know, just for a few applications in the early part so that we can preserve uh, the fungicides we have and we don't build resistance and we can rotate and, you know, have minimal use of fungicide use. Uh, but probably our number one pest and disease is grape leaf roll virus. Um, we don't have vine mealybug up here, but grape mealybug has two to three generations. Uh, I think uh, because we have a zero tolerance for grape mealybug, because it only, our, our research shows it only takes one to go kiss a new vine and spread it. Uh, I think early on it was spread through propagation, but now we're finding brand new, clean, replanted vineyards. If they're next door to a dirty vineyard, our winds bring that mealybug in. And uh, so we are uh, going to uh, see if we can uh, use pheromone mating disruption to be more sustainable um, and come up with some better management because we're concerned that we could be building resistance to commonly widespread used uh, insecticides. Um, so that's a very high priority topic um, for the industry. Um, you know, we occasionally have mite flare ups, but if you uh, take care of the vines, usually they're not a problem. Leaf hoppers are maybe just a nuisance, uh, but very few growers even have to spray. Um, but I think the story for this industry was about in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, they had a cutworm problem. And so everybody was using um, Lorsban, chlorpyrifos, um, you know, and it was just destroying everything in the vineyard. No beneficials were left. Uh, so WSU started working on some spot, spot application where you just put, and, and they changed uh, materials to pyrethroids and they uh, came up with a way to just put a dab of this at the base of each trunk. It kept the grapevine, the cutworms from climbing up, eliminated our problem. And then all of a sudden, boy, our vineyards started to get healthy. Uh, and they did some studies and they reduced pesticide use in the state by about 80%. Um, I think that number has probably climbed up a little bit because of this great mealybug issue we've got. But for the most part, you know, it's, it, it took care of those perennial problems. Yes, uh, we have new things that pop up. Uh, we found a new grape uh, leaf roller or leaf folder moth, uh, the white headed uh, leaf folder moth um, in some area, pocket areas that we're trying to figure out uh, where it came from. How do we take care of that? Uh, a new leaf mining pest, uh, you know, found in two places. But yes, we always have the threat of spotter and lantern if it were to get into the state. Um, Japanese beetle is a, uh, grapes are a favorite of that. And I think they, found a, they have found in backyards a couple Japanese beetles. So those are concerns, but you know, we don't have Pierce's disease. Uh, we don't have glassy wing sharpshooter. We just, and even red blotch, uh, we have a very small um, incident of the virus here, but we've been able to trace it came in on um, propagated material. We cannot find the three-cornered alfalfa hopper that California seems to be moving about. Um, Oregon's had some issues where it has moved quite rapidly, 
but we just don't have red blotch spreading here. And so uh, our research shows that if you have red blotch, if you remove those infected vines uh, and plant with clean material, uh, you know, it shouldn't come back to bite you. So um, I might add the, the one downside of not having vine mealybug is that the pheromone is different for grape mealybug than vine mealybug. And the grape pheromone is much more expensive to make than the vine mealybug. And if they could use the same pheromone, you know, I think we could uh, take a page from the California playbook because California is starting to do a lot of work in that area. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it's a whole different chemistry. Um, so Doug Walsh, who is the WSU entomologist, he's working closely with Kent Dana, with uh, the UC uh, entomologist down in California, and they're sharing notes. And that's an, an area where collaboration uh, is helping us. Um, but in general, I think we're finding that, uh, and most of Washington is on own roots. Uh, we do now have some pockets of phylloxera that uh, we didn't think were there. We thought we were, uh, just didn't have the soils that phylloxera liked. Um, so now the industry is starting to look at rootstocks and is uh, planting rootstocks on, you know, not wholesale, but as we start to wrap our head around how to use them, uh, what are the best ones? Uh, nematodes are something we are finding in replant situations. Um, you know, we're now, because we're a young industry, we've got vineyards now that are 40 to 50 years old and that's when you need to take them out um, often. Um, and so we are looking at a variety of uh, steps management for nematodes. And there again, you know, we don't have the ones that California has. They have Southern uh, root knot. We've got Northern root knot. Uh, we've got dagger but those are our two primary ones. So we can't just, again, take a page of California. We have to do the work here. And with our dry soils, we were finding that uh, just the nematicide application times didn't work for Washington because it's when the juveniles weren't even around. So uh, we are looking at like pre-plant and post-plant um, cover crop type strategies um, as a way to get because there aren't any nematicides that really work very well. So as a way to, you know, try to figure out how else can we manage these uh, in addition to rootstocks. So we've got some steep learning curves uh, for the industry here as we learn, because probably uh, until like a year ago, about 90% were on own roots. And so there's a lot of people who have to start to now figure out what rootstocks should they be planting. So. Through our nematode trials, we have some rootstock trials ongoing. And with that, I think I'll stop. <laughs> very, very interesting, very complete. Uh, so you both already started to, to talk a bit about uh, the solution, but um, yeah, what I want, I want to dig a little bit further. And what I think is that transitioning towards more sustainable farming practices requires taking a more holistic approach than conventional pest management. And usually it's more of a uh, preventive rather than creative approach. Uh, so various tools and strategy can be used and often needs to be combined. So you have organic uh, uh, pesticide or, fun or fungicide, you have uh, augmentative conservation biocontrol, uh, mating disruptions that you mentioned, nutrition management, um, then the selection of, of, of uh, genetic and, and rootstock. Um, 
And then there is a cultural practice of uh, somebody in the chat is mentioning the, um, the collaboration in a in a area. I know it's done in, in California to some extent for the vine minibug, uh, but it's not really easy to to put off. Like uh, this person is uh, yeah is mentioning not always easy to suggest a non-cooperative neighbor to pull a contaminated vineyard. Um, I see this becoming more of a problem with exotics. Um, so there is a lot of potential solutions, but it's uh, not a uh, one size fits all. And you mentioned something very interesting, Melissa, is that what works in California won't necessarily work in, in Washington. And so to get a bit, bit more concrete, I, I would like, like you to give, uh, so David, if you want to start to give like one or two like concrete examples of some sustainable pests or disease management practices that you are currently implementing or potentially um, contemplating to, to implement in the near future? Uh, sure, I, I'll start with one that um, we started doing in the, in the mid 90s and has been very successful for us. So, and it's about spider mites. Uh, so spider mites love Zinfandel. Zinfandel has uh, very, uh, very tormentous leaves, so lots of hair on the base of the leaves. And they're big, broad leaves, so they heat up quite a bit in the day in the, in Cal in the hot California suns. And furthermore, they're, they seem to be very sensitive to the spider mite pressure. And by that, I mean if you have uh, 10 spider mites per leaf on a Zinfandel vine, it looks like it's going to die. I mean, it's just sickly and turns yellow and starts to drop leaves. You can have 20 mites per leaf on a neighboring petite Syrah vine, and it's happy as can be, nice and green, no, no worries. Uh, it's crazy. And so the typical for conventional vineyards in California, especially in, in um, Zinfandel in the North Coast, is you get to a certain point of the year, you see spider mites uh, starting to climb, and you use a miticide on them. And there are many different miticides out there. They're actually, uh, with the new chemistry that's out, they're pretty amazing. Um, they don't really affect beneficials uh, very much like the old miticides used to do. They're less broad spectrum they're, they're, um, and very targeted, but you still end up with a um, kind of a cycle where you just pretty much, if you start spraying with a miticide, you have to spray it ev almost every year. It's rare that you don't need to spray. So in the mid nineties, uh, that didn't seem to be sustainable um, for us. For one thing, back then there weren't the, the, the um, more selective miticides that there are now. So when what we were spraying are more like the kind of, uh, for instance, the uh, similar to the organic miticides that we have available now, they're more broad spectrum. They kill a lot of things, so you don't really want to use them. So uh, what we ended up doing is, uh, is looking at ways that we could keep dust down in the vineyard. So we went to mowing all of our turnarounds instead of, you know, this is cultural control, right? So mowing our turnarounds and keeping the um, native weeds and grasses there as opposed to disking everything. Um, we we're also doing alternate row tillage. So only tilling about half the vineyard. And we were only do doing that so that we could get some nutrients into the vines. So trying to help their nutrient load so they grew a little bit more healthily. Um, we watched um, water where we had capability of irrigating and the vines actually needed it. We made sure that they, after um, 
duration, but before harvest, they weren't stressed very much. So uh, because Mike's likes really stressed vines and dusty vines. And then the other thing we started doing was um, adding beneficial insects. And so uh, we, there are a couple different beneficial mites that, that are very good at hunting down um, spider mites. One is a, 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 we call it a Cali mite. Um, and another one is a Occidentalis. Uh, they're, they're very similar. They like a little bit, the Occidentalis likes a little bit cooler temperatures than the Cali mite. Um, but they are, you have to do inundative releases for them. So they're not like an insecticide or a miticide. They can't just knock the pest down. Um, but there is an insect, a beneficial insect that does, it act, actually it kind of acts like a winged in, a miticide, and that's uh, six-spotted thrips. And so we found that, and they use them in California, they're used um, quite a bit in, in um, greenhouses, and they were starting to use them in orchards. So um, we began using them in our vineyards and releasing them as adults. They are voracious, uh, and they lay a lot of eggs, and they, when they eat up the mites in one area, they fly in, until they find other mites in another area. So after about six or seven years of uh, annual releases of those, um, we had enough that had, had established themselves in the vineyards that, that for the last, um, up until two years ago, we didn't need to um, buy anymore and release anymore. They were taking care of our mite population. But I think the drought of the... Um, of the aughts and, and then the last year's dry weather, uh, we saw a flare up of mites. So we, we bought um, some more six spotted thrips. Last year, we're gonna buy some more this year. And they, they like the hot weather um, that we get in Sonoma County in the summer. And it's a, it's a great success story because you can, you can pretty much eliminate um, mites. And the thing about mites is it's very similar to other diseases and other pests is if they show up in one area one year, um, nine times out of 10, they'll show up in that same area. It might not be the next year, but that's where that's, um, there's something about that area that um, it facilitates a buildup of mites or a buildup of powdery mildew. And so if you know your vineyards really well through scouting, you kind of know where to look for the first signs of an infection and then also where to put out um, if you're going to do beneficial insects or spot treatments of anything kind of know where to, where to go. So that's a, and that's part of IPM, integrated pest management. And that's something that um, I think that wine grapes um, in particular and table grapes too in California do very well. Yeah, great, uh, great story, David. Uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, so maybe Sa, if you want to talk yeah, about a specific like topic of, of research uh, you're focusing on, um, sure. And I kind of touched a little bit earlier, but the mating disruption is something we're going down on that path. Um, we've used uh, traps before, um, but and kind of determined how many trap numbers you need per acre, but not really, you know, gone down the mating disruption. And so um, our tactic now is, OK, let's see if we can get um, mating disruption to work. And then we'll try to concentrate in an area wide so that then maybe we can encourage those who have the dirty vineyards, um, give them the tools to replant with certified with the knowledge that, okay, if we can get everybody in this re in this AVA or this, you know, small area 
to be clean, um, to be controlling effectively, uh, you know, they're a great mealy bug, uh, then it's worth your while to replant. Because we're almost in a situation now where if you know it's time, you know, you're above a 20% threshold of um, virus in your vineyard, but if you're surrounded by others who don't care, it's almost pointless. Um, we, you know, followed through research, brand new, replanted with clean plants, and within three years, they were widespread, you know, infection had just widespread takeover. So that's not sustainable. That is not economically viable for the industry. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's an area that we're really putting a lot of focus on. Um, and one area that we see is lacking, um, and we hope to start to look more, and we didn't touch on this yet, um, it's not really an insect pest, but weed management. Um, you know, there, I know growers who tried to use hand labor to hoe because they wanted to be sustainable, they wanted to move away from glyphosate. Uh, that's not economically viable these days. So people are looking at cultivators and, you know, different weed eater type things. But then again, you still have a tractor out there that's using fossil fuel. Um, and so, you know, this is something that we hope to work on in the future is to come up with something that is more sustainable by nature. Um, and I don't know what that is, um, but we've even, uh, looked at subsurface drip irrigation. So you put a tube next to the vine. Um, it's a proof of concept still. Uh, I don't have the economics on what it would cost to install, but you can reduce by about 60% of the water. And the beauty is you don't have any weeds on the top underneath the, the, the vine row because you're not putting water there. Um, but that's not ready yet, I don't think, to be commercially just wholesale implemented because um, it's not cheap to drill tool to, you know, tubes um, into an existing vineyard. Uh, so I think- yeah, So Melissa, if, when, when you find that weed control, undervine weed control that is, um, doesn't take a lot of tractor or yeah. manpower labor, let me know, please, because yeah. we could use it. That's like a, the holy grail. Like I oh, always yeah. say an organic, an organic herbicide is, is um, kind of an oxymoron, but it's something that we desperately need. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it will be technology because I know on the, on the lettuce side, you know, they now have these little selective spot sprayers that can tell the difference between a lettuce start and a weed. And maybe down the road, uh, you know, I, I know our, some of our growers have tried the flaming and then they end up burning up their, uh, PVC or their uh, drip irrigation tubes and, you know, or starting a small fire. So um, yeah. there's just, uh, yeah, it's an area that is a priority for us and we're going to start to, to work on it. Yeah. So, is there any <laughs> yeah. I like Nicholas's uh, <laughs> suggestion, solar powered electric sheep. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah well, I was going, yeah, I like that. I, I was going to mention that there is a couple of, um, uh, companies I'm aware of, actually French companies uh, present in California during like automated uh, robots that uh, uh, cut the weeds, uh, remove the weeds mechanically um, in the vineyard. So I think there is a lot of things that are going to happen uh, that way, but then is it more sustainable? You know, if you take everything into equation, like how, like, 
the, the footprint of like building the robots. Uh, the equation of sustainability is not easy at all. Um, and yeah, sheep and like uh, bringing animal uh, can, can be interesting as well. <laughs> That's a whole <laughs> entire topic. What, what I like to discuss, we can come back maybe to uh, like more concrete example. And the question is uh, also pretty broad. I want to talk about like one or two of the main challenges of the implementation of sustainable uh, pest and disease management, how to tackle them. Maybe we can talk about, um, I think a lot of people are afraid of the cost, which is often higher in the short term. Uh, and so you probably need to take a different approach and, uh, and not think like only about the cost in the short term, but obviously it's hard. Um, and then we can open the discussion and, 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 and see how wine growers and, and, and commission association, like, like uh, researcher like you, uh, Melissa, how you can uh, collaborate uh, better uh, to, um, to tackle those challenges. So it's a pretty broad question, but like, yeah, if you want to talk about a specific challenge and how to tackle it or Something well, I, I might jump in um, in that, you know, nobody wants to reinvent the wheel or duplicate what's already been done. And so this idea of regional collaboration, um, I think we need to strive for. And I want to call out, I think she's still on, uh, Lisa Fenn um, from the Wine Institute um, and the California Sustainable Wine Alliance um, was participating. Um, I think she's still up there, but they uh, were able to uh, pull together. Yep, she's there, Francione. Um, they, they were able to receive a grant from California Department of Food and Ag, it was a specialty crop block grant that brought in Oregon, Washington, New York, California. And we all, all those who had interest in sustainable. And I have to admit Washington State we are in the process of developing a statewide sustainable program that has certification. Um, and we'll have a pilot project ready this fall and then next year it will be full scale. Um, so, but we've had a, a self-assessment online for about 20 years. So it's been of interest, but just nobody ever thought, well, we needed to take that final step of certification because of the cost. Uh, but I think now there's marketing that shows, you know, you need to be able to tell the consumer what you're doing and to say you did an online self-assessment isn't, doesn't stand up to next to something like Lodi rules or live or California that, you know, you went through a rigorous third party review. Um, but that process of having this grant, we had all these states working together, um, developing common messaging uh, so that the consumer could start to hear the same thing regardless of where they're at. And uh, some market research was done that showed the value back to the grower or back to the winery of what having a sustainable logo on your label really means. And I think we need to take that and just continue to have this, you know, nationwide. Um, it's not us against them. We uh, us against them. It's you know we all need to work together because it's a complex. Um, it's hard for the consumer to understand. And yes, they think they know organic, but then when you say, well, no, but we're sustainable, then they really don't understand. And 
sustainable, you know, takes into fact the labor force, takes into effect the community, which organic doesn't do. And so, um, you know, I think we need to continue these conversations and to continue to work collaboratively together. And I'm hopeful that as we start to figure out exactly what we need to do on weeds and uh, some of these other areas that we can team up with California researchers and bring, um, you know, Oregon State, Washington State University and University of California working together. So I'll stop, David. <laughs> Uh, so there's but, a lot of questions coming in, but if you want to jump, uh, David. And... Oh, I just, I, I love that. It's, it's like um, trying to explain sustainability. You can't do it. You can't do an elevator pitch on sustainability. You have to, it's, it can be so complex. But um, I also see that uh, because we, we have made a commitment, Ridge has uh, made a commitment to growing our grapes organically. And when I talk people about organics they say oh you don't spray anything and i say no we use organic pesticides and in fact we spray more often than conventional than our conventional neighbors um and so there's still misconceptions around organics and and also there are, are people that say well it's all but organic so it's not certified so there's you know it's just it's so complex and so um so hard to get your voice across so you just have to I think pick a path and I think that being certified is really important, whether it's certified sustainable through um, COG and the California Wine Growing Alliance or Lodi Rules or Fish Friendly Farming or uh, Oregon Live. I think that's great that Washington State's doing that. I think that is a real step uh, toward building consumer confidence and, and getting the, you know, the gatekeepers um, in the world of wine to really talk about that. And um, and embrace it. And they will definitely. I mean, you see wine shops that will only do um, organic or biodynamic wines. Um, they'll start doing the same thing with sustainable wines. I'm sure that as soon as they wrap their head around that. So that's, it's all about education, right? So that's very important. All right. Um, yeah. And then you, so education on the part of the consumer and then yeah, trying to see what are the benefits of, uh, from an economic point of view, from a cost point of view of using these uh, practices. You are talking about, uh, yeah, pest resistance to some pesticides, and like some of their practices can be uh, useful from an economic point of view for the grower without mentioning the, you know, um, the sustainability aspects. Uh, so there is a question from. Uh, Angela, what is the approach towards trunk disease control and effective methods besides removing impacted vines? The... For uh, for viruses? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, trunk disease. Yeah, I guess. Oh, trunk disease. Ah, trunk. so the 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 main thing that we've seen, and this is from research all the way from the late Doug Googler, um, and it's still carrying on today, is that you need to start protecting your vines um, from the from year one for trunk diseases, especially in areas coastal um, California where there's a lot of um, trunk disease existing in the vineyard. There are a lot of uh, susceptible um, native vegetation outside the vineyard that can carry these um, diseases, and they're also kind of present in the in the vines. So the first thing for say um, is clean stock and then you have to protect your pruning wounds. So you can do that in many different ways. 
up until the last couple of years, there weren't any organic, um, certified organic materials that you can use as wound protectants. So people were making their own. Um, in fact, we use one that's a, a mix of um, mineral oil and beeswax that we actually kind of cover the cuts on. Um, there are starting to be some other, other um, there's interest in this. That there are some uh, very good sustainable and conventional methods that you can use to protect your pruning wounds. And you can use cultural and um, practices like delaying your pruning a little bit later. But yes, if you have uh, existing trunk disease and it's starting to kill the top of the vine, then you can remove the trunk until um, you are past that infection and then retrain, uh, but that is expensive. It will keep the vines in the ground longer, but, um, and it's maybe cheaper than replanting, but you have to be careful to start that soon enough so that you can kind of like cancer, you cut it out past the infection. You have to make sure that what you, what's left in the vine is clean and then you can retrain. Uh, but, but protecting those wounds is vitally important. Thank you, David. Um, so we have 10 minutes uh, left. Uh, is there any topic I uh, we didn't cover you want to talk about, Melissa and, and David? No, I think may maybe you should just, there's yeah. a couple more questions in there. Yeah, so I can read, yeah, there is one here. Hi, walking across Australia, southern, southern France and Spain with Grenache, Carignan and Little Shiraz, mostly older vineyards, mostly unirrigated and trunk diseases. Audrey, and and we'll both are also our key challenges. Any insights you could offer on new approaches? Um, <laughs> that's. I um. Well, I I mean for for myself, Melissa, do you want to take well, it? Well, you yeah. know we don't have unirrigated, so we can keep canopies open, not have a lot of vigorous canopies, so we can use cultural up here. Um, but what we found works for our low pressure is just, you got to be spot on with your timing, especially early in the season. And if you do a good job, then, then you won't have a problem the rest of the season. So before bunch closure. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've really drilled down, helped the industry drill down to knowing when are they at risk? Um, the uh, um, Doug Gubler, there is the, you know, powdery mildew uh, risk model that California was using. It didn't work exactly on for us, but we kind of learned how to work with it. Um, we have a system in the state called AgWeatherNet that has, you know, it's like CMOS, I think, in California. So it's got weather stations throughout all the production regions, and you can go to a nearby weather station and look at your um, you know, temperatures and moistures, and we can uh, send out bulletins, high risk time, you know, make sure you're getting your uh, preventative materials on now because, uh, you know, it's 85 degrees and we had a rain yesterday kind of thing, um, or a rain is coming. So we can use that. But um, I, I think you have more experience, David, in, um, you know, maybe the unirrigated areas <laughs> yeah you it, to, to grow grapes uh, especially in um in northern california unirrigated you have to have really good soil deep soil and you have to um it's nice to get you know about 18 inches of um, rain per year something like that and then you have to figure out a way to 
uh, conserve that moisture uh, if it doesn't fall when you want it to. So if it all comes in the winter and you have a very dry spring, then you have to watch your weed pressure and make sure that you um, either mow it out or disc it out or whatever um, as much as possible. The other thing that we've seen that has helped quite a bit is trying to add more organic matter to the soil, whether that's through compost. And we put our compost out in the fall so that we basically use the compost to um, grow our cover crop so that, and then the cover crop is going to actually give more organic matter to the soil than, than any compost that you could um, put out. Um, and that works really well in our, with our climate, with our cool, uh, wet winters. And, um, and, other than that, it's just kind of making sure that you balance your vines so that you don't, you don't have too much shoot growth. Like you, like Melissa, you're saying, make sure your canopy is sized correctly. So um, if you have large cluster varieties, like those uh, varieties mentioned, um, except maybe for Syrah, the only way that you can slow a, a canopy of a shoot growth down in the middle of the summer is to have more crop on it and that because that will really slow it down in a wet year. Um, but you can't put too much crop on it because you need to get it right in the fall. And, and so, um, but that's farming, right? It's a balancing act. You have to react to what the climate's giving you and, um, and, and, and go from there. For instance, this year in California, we've had about a third of normal rain. So for us at Montebello, we usually get almost a meter of water every year. So 35 or so inches of rain. Um, and this year we were at 13. So um, we're right in the middle of bloom. The shoots aren't nearly as long as I want them to be. So we're going to go immediately and we're going to take off every other cluster in, um, say, our Merlot or our Chardonnay, where we know that um, we don't have enough leaf area or water reserves to get those right. So, um, and, and that's even in some blocks where we have limited uh, capability for irrigating. For um, dry farmed vineyards, you just you really have to roll with uh, with what Mother Nature gives you, and um, and really really watch that so that you don't hurt the vines because we're growing a perennial crop, and you have to always look for toward next year. It's kind of like I mean, but that's farming too. If if you can make um, a good profit every four years and break even the other three, then you're doing really well. Um, it, it seems to me. So you always have to look toward next year and save those vine resources to, to um, go into the following year and the year after that. Thanks, David. And yeah, um, discussed a lot of things. Um, yeah, any last advice? I think something I've heard and uh, is that we, we discuss a lot with uh, growers is uh, uh, prevention, like scouting your fields and uh, start early um, and and yeah, walk, walk your field. Like you cannot expect to, because you don't have a creative approach uh, that will work. So you need to, yeah, to be on top of, on, of what's happening in your vineyard. So a lot of, a lot of scouting, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's one place where robots or there's an electric tractor that's coming out here in California that has lots of um, cameras on it. And so perhaps you can, through artificial intelligence, you can kind of use that to um, replace maybe half of an eyeball, but you still have to get out into the vineyard and, and also know your vineyards. And that's where the, the people part comes in. Like Melissa was talking about, there's a, 
there's a, um, it's really important to have a crews that people working in the vineyard that know those vineyards. And, um, and that's one thing that the, if you look overall the wine grape community, I'm very proud of, of in Northern California, we have, um, in, in coastal California, I should say, because the economics have been um, pretty good, there are, have been um, enough economic incentive to, to have uh, vineyard workers out in the field. Like, I mean, I think our average um, tenure at Ridge of um, the vineyard crew is about 20 years. Now, that's great because they know those vineyards really well. It's, it's kind of sad because they're getting old like I am <laughs> and, can't, and it's a lot of hard work. But it's really important because knowledge and knowing the place, that's what wine grapes are all about. That's what, to me, that's what makes um, wine such a special thing because it really shows a sense of place. And part of that sense of place are the people working in the field. And that's a huge part of sustainability, in, in my opinion. Right. Uh, thanks a lot. We are getting close to the end of this uh, conversation. Um, so feel free to, if to, where can people like uh, reach out to you if they have questions, if they want to continue the conversation, maybe? To, um, if there is a place where they can reach out to you too, that would be great. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for attending. Uh, that was a great conversation, David and, and Melissa. Uh, after this, um, after we finish, uh, there is a 15 minutes break, I think, and then another panel will uh, start on this uh, Zoom uh, link. Uh, but depending on what you, the panel you want to watch um, later, just make sure to, to double check the, the link, the Zoom link. All right, uh, I write my email address as well. Feel free to reach out to me. And yeah, I think something I've been trying to do myself is uh, try to spread the word about what people are doing, not uh, stay uh, focused on your own like operation, but like try to talk about what's working and what's not working as well so that people can learn from it. And like we've mentioned with uh, some pests and, and diseases, if, if the neighbor is not doing it right, uh, it's a threat for your own vineyard. So uh, collaboration and, and global education is uh, super important. So I encourage everybody to, to share their, um, their experience, good or bad. <laughs> Thanks Thank a lot, you. everybody.